Thank you for tuning into the City Church California podcast. We exist for anyone to believe in God, to become who God created them to be, and to build the church and our city. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so that you can be updated anytime we add new content. Now let's check out the latest message from our Sunday gathering. Happy Independence Day, everyone. I told the last service, uh, I've got three young kids, so yes, I turned 29 today, but I feel like I'm 49, you know? And it's Sundays where the kids choose to have a full-fledged meltdown. Our two-year-old was going for blood today, but you know what? We made it here. We're glad. Um, I am so excited. I'm so honored to be moving up here, me and my wife. Um, we, we cannot wait. This has been something we've been praying for for two years, and um, I just want to thank you for allowing us to come and be a part of the family. We're excited to lead California Coast Bible College into to a new era. Um, and if you are considering what you want to do next year, come and join our Monastery of Modern Monks is what we're going to call it. Because um, that's who our, our pastor is, my dad, and, and who, who our church is, is we are here to form and shape the leaders of our next generation. And, and I'm honored to be here. Uh, if you are a young person and you are not signed up for City Youth Camp, do so today. If finances are an issue, me and my wife will personally pay for you. We will do whatever we have to do. But we believe in camp. We believe that God changes lives at camp. My life was changed at camp going into my senior year of high school at Ventura High School. God called me into ministry and I will forever be marked because of a camp. So do not miss camp. Don't let your teenager miss camp. I don't care if they say they don't want to. It's called my house and say, my house, my rules, you're out. Go to camp, you know. Uh, send them to camp. It's going to be awesome. And I want to thank you personally for allowing my parents to go on uh, arrest and sabbatical because I think that Sabbath is one of the most undervalued disciplines in the church today. And uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful in a church that believes in rest and believes in our pastors. And so thank you personally um, from their son. I don't want to cry, so we're going to move on. So I'm going to talk out of Matthew chapter 5 today. Um, The title of my talk is What God Congratulates. What God Congratulates. Um, Matthew 5 and verse 3. And this is the Beatitudes. It says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are reviled and, and, and others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The book of Matthew, um, it's really main meta narrative or main theme is about the kingdom, establishing the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus through his earthly father, Joseph, and, and, and solidifying the prophecy and fulfilling the prophecy that David's house would forever reign on the throne eternally through Jesus. So it's, it's establishing his kingship, but it's also establishing his kingdom. 
And what is the kingdom of God? And what does this look like in our life? I mean, if you've grown up or been around church any bit of time, you've heard about the kingdom. You're doing kingdom work. This is kingdom. But what is the kingdom of God? This is what Jesus is introducing to us, especially on the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the most debated passage of scripture in the New Testament is the Sermon on the Mount. And he's introducing this concept of the kingdom of God. And he starts with the Beatitudes. See, the reason it's debated is because you have kind of different schools of thought on what did Jesus really mean when he talks about the Sermon on the Mount. Because if we've read the Sermon on the Mount, which is a long sermon, by the way, it's three chapters in the Bible. So it's like, if you think I preach long, Jesus preached longer and forgive me, okay? It's just like, if you say he went too long today, go read the Sermon on the Mount. Right, So the, the, this long sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's debated. Now, some people think it's just about ethics. It's just about Jesus's ethical way and how to be a good person. In fact, Karl Marx loved the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi quoted the Sermon on the Mount because it was about ethics. I heard a celebrity say the other day that they love the Bible for its ethics but the other things, like, I don't really know what to do with those, so I don't believe in those, but I just love the ethics of Jesus. This is what people look at as the Sermon on the Mount. Some people think the Sermon on the Mount is, is not just about ethics, but it was about a political upheaval of the system, like activism. Like, this was Jesus' way of destroying the whole thing, burning it to the ground, and we're going to rebuild our way, right? We re-deconstruct, then we reimagine and we rebuild. Does it sound familiar? Like, that's what they thought the Sermon on the Mount was supposed to be. And in fact, the Jews were con convinced that Jesus was their political activist that was going to overthrow the Roman rule. But little did they know, Jesus had something so much deeper when he talks about the kingdom of God. Then others, it's like, it, 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 th th there's a belief that it's only the future, it's not really for right now. Yes, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Yes, it's about his heavenly kingdom, but it's only for his perfect heavenly kingdom that's going to come when he returns from heaven to earth and restores a new heavens and a new earth. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about right now. He's not really being literal. It's not right now. It's for the future. But Jesus, in his infinite knowledge and, 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 and genius, introduces a concept that theologians call the already and the not yet. It is the introduction to the kingdom that will be fully consummated in the, the, the return of Christ. But he's saying in this passage, he doesn't say what's going to happen. He's saying it's right now. Blessed is those who do this now. So he's saying the kingdom is both present and it is to come. The already and the not yet is the tension that you and I, we all live in as the church because Christ has set us free from sin. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave, but we are waiting for Christ to return. So there's this tension, there's this space, there's this place that we're waiting in. And Jesus is talking to this and saying, the kingdom of God is this right now. And the kingdom of God, I would define it as this. It's God's rule and effective rule and reign in his dominion. It is his effective rule, his reign, and his dominion, or God's effective will. It's what God's ruling over and the decisions that God would make and the direction that God would go. God's kingdom is God's family business. 
Whether we realize it or not, we stepped into Christianity, we step into a family business. And God wants to show us the ways of the family business. He wants to show us how we act and how we live and what our culture is and what our mission is and how are we going to reach this world to expand the kingdom of God, to expand his reach, to expand his rule and his reign because he's a sovereign God, he's in charge of everything, but he's a God that, 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 that gives us a choice to respond. And so there's this gap in this period into his kingdom is perfectly made known to everyone and that's what we live in the already and the not yet so this is the tension that we live in the sermon on the mount is christ manifesto it's his sermon for a counter community to the normal way of living he's saying this is the kingdom of god and this is how i want those who assign to this kingdom to live this is how i want my family to look like. This is what I want our business to look like. This is how I want us to go about our business. It's Christ's manifesto to the church. It's Christ's manifesto to you and to I, to how we are called to live. It's no longer about self-seeking or self-preservation or self-centered, but it is a kingdom that from the inside out, we are transformed from our spirit to our mind, to our bodies, and to how we live that affects change everywhere we go because we are a part of a new way of living that is counter to the kingdom of this world. It is the kingdom of heaven. We are no longer about self-righteousness or what we can do, but it's to put God's righteousness on display. And we see nine different times in this passage, it says this phrase, blessed are those. Blessed are those. Now, growing up, I thought blessing was just, I got a Model X, right, in Jesus' name. And I got a million dollars in the bank and I'm blessed. So when I read that, it's like, come on, bring the blessing in Jesus' name. Now, I'm not against that. And if you have a Model X, praise God for you. We're still praying for that blessing. But is that what blessing really is? Is it just materials? Is it just higher paychecks and promotions? Is, it, is that what blessing really means? Well, when it says blessed are those, what it's really saying is there's a divine favor upon and it is what God congratulates both now and in eternity for those who do this. So if we want to know what is the life that God will say, congratulations, you responded well, this is it. So when we get to heaven... God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he'll say, depart, for I never knew you. And the, the, the well done, good and faithful servant is a congratulations, you responded well. You made the right choice. Believe it or not, I do believe we have a choice. I, I, I do believe we can respond because God's a good God. That's what love is. Love requires a choice. But there's a choice in this. And God is saying, congratulations to those who do this. This is what I'm asking you to do. This is the life I've called us to live. This is what my kingdom looks like. And congratulations to those who respond correctly because there's a blessing on your life. There's a favor on your life. There is something about when we respond in obedience to God that whether we realize it or not, there's a flow of the Holy Spirit that begins to transform who we are. And God is saying there is a divine favor upon those who respond correctly. And he's going to say, congratulations, I'm glad you made that choice. Because that's the right choice. So blessed are those. So how do we live this life? So we're going to go through the Beatitudes. It says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is not the freedom to have an immature faith, but it's the acknowledgement that we are ineffectual spiritually without Jesus. So like when I read poor in spirit, some people are like, I'm just like, 
I'm just so broken. Just like, you know, God, like I'm so poor in spirit. I can't, like I'm just always going to be this way and I'm, this is what I'm going to do. So we kind of like take it as like liberty to do what we're still doing. I'm just weak. I'm just so weak. <laughs> it's like, man, we serve a weak God then. That's interesting. That's not what it's saying. Or it's like poor in spirit. It's like we're so self-deprecating. Like I'm nobody. I can do nothing. It's like, you know, David Philly in the front row here is an incredible singer, right? It's like, we think poor in spirit is like, hey, David, you're incredible. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm not a good singer. He's like, no, you, you are. No, I'm horrible. It's like, bro, you're good. No, I'm not. I'm not. Like, we think that that's what poor in spirit means. That's what humility means. Poor in spirit is just recognizing that without Jesus, I can't do this. Brokenness is not the destination of our Christian walk. Brokenness is just the bus stop that we have to go through to get to where he's taking us. We have to recognize that I need Jesus. We have to recognize that I am broken without him. But that's not where God wants us to stay. So those who are poor in spirit are not those who stay poor in spirit, but it's recognizing I can't do this without God. My spirit is broken without God. My soul is broken without God. My thinking is broken without God. So God, take me somewhere I cannot go on my own. That's what poor in spirit is. And that's why it's the entry level into the kingdom of God, because he's saying, if we want to walk in the kingdom of God, first, we have to understand, I can't do this without God. Living in a kingdom life is impossible without the king. It's impossible. If we want to be who God has called us to be, we have to first recognize I am broken, but God doesn't want our recognition of our brokenness to become the identity in which we live. He wants us to recognize where we're broken so then he can heal, restore, make new, mold, shape into who he's designed us to be. See, for the Jews, poverty was actually a sign of like spiritual desperation. So when they're saying I'm poor in spirit, for them they're saying if you're poor, like God's not blessing you, then you're not actually connected to God. See, the problem is sometimes we make it like a lot about money, right? Like when Jesus says this, it is more difficult for a wealthy man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's like some people have taken that verse and says, if you're rich, you're not going to heaven. And then some people say, well, if I'm poor, like God's blessing is not on my life. And we make it about the material things. So when Jesus says it's not about poor in, in money or rich in money, it's about being those who are poor in spirit. So you could have millions of dollars yet recognize you could not have gotten this without God. And you could have nothing and still think you don't need God. It's not about the finances. It's not about your bank account. It's about Jesus being the source of your life. And this is what he's saying. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I will congratulate those who recognize they need me. That's what he's saying. I'll I'll congratulate those who respond and let me know and, and realize they need me. They're ineffective without me. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're not called to just shake off sorrow and grief. I I think that one of the greatest misnomers in our Christian faith is that the more mature we get in our faith, the less we are affected by things in the world. So like, for example, if we lose a family member or someone's sick or there's financial hardship or there's pain in our life. We, well, I'm just, no, I'm a good believer. I'm a saint. I'm just shaking this off. I'm okay. I don't feel pain. It's like, whoa, that's not normal. In fact, I think we should be the best at grieving because we have the comforter and the counselor. And he's saying, blessed for those who grieve, who mourn. 
Maybe it's a mourning for where we've fallen short and where we've sinned and there's a holy mourning, a grieving that we've grieved God's heart and we repent. Maybe it's a grieving of loss and pain. Maybe it's a grieving of a family member who's far away. Maybe it's a grieving just of the state of our world right now where we're sitting here and people are yelling and screaming and angry at each other. There's a, there's a real thing about we need to mourn for things a little bit better. That if you're in pain today, that's okay. In fact, the beauty of the Christian faith is that you don't mourn by yourself. And, and if for those who are mourning, we actually run and we mourn with them. Which mourning with them doesn't mean we offer our opinion on what we think they should do to get over the mourning. Mourning with them means we just weep with them and we cry with them and we say, hey, can I pray with you? Can I just be with you? Can I just, can I just, can I just stand with you? Because the Holy Spirit can comfort much better than our words can. The Holy Spirit can comfort much more than the things we can tweet or Instagram. What we need is to give space to the comforter and the counselor to come and just heal and comfort us in our mourning. And I think sometimes the reason why we never get over our grief is because we never actually take time to grieve. Grieving is a part of life, it says in Ecclesiastes. There's a time to dance, there's a time to celebrate, but sometimes there's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to sit with one another and just be. And I think our world is in pain. And I think what we need to bring is a comforter and a counselor that nobody else has, and his name is the Holy Spirit. And imagine as a kingdom church that we would run to those who were mourning. We would run to those who are grieving. I've been a youth pastor for eight years. I've had young people that have had abortions and I know that it's a moral victory and I'm so glad that this was overturned. But have we ever sat with someone who made that decision? That's a painful decision. That it doesn't just affect the life of the, that, that was taken. It affects that life of young people who have no idea what they're doing. Christianity is not telling them that they're wrong all the time. Sometimes it means I'm just going to sit with you and weep because I know it hurts. That's what it means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. What Pastor Michael was saying is what we do. It's not just what we say. It's, what we, it's who we are. We mourn. We give. We serve. We, don't, we, 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 we are not just activists, but we are active. We're not activists. We're active, though. We're active in our community. If there's tragedy in our world, we are the first to be there to mourn, to not offer an opinion, to not offer a perspective, but to offer our heart and to offer our time. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is God's counter conquering strategy. Conquering in our world is aggressive and oppressive. It's like whoever's the most aggressive, like you win, right? And I'm a wrestler, so like that's my natural like thing. Like if we're going head to head, it's like I'm, I'm going to try to rip your head off. Like it's, let's do this, right? Like I win, right? But God is saying my kingdom is expanded by those who are meek, who die to their self and project the righteousness of God. I die to self and, I, and what I want and self-projection and I project righteousness in my living. And it's an inviting life. See, I think we know how to defend our faith, which I think I'm all about theology and doctrine. Believe you, I, I, I love it. And that's why I'm leading a Bible college. But if we only know how to defend our faith, but we don't live a life that's inviting into it, we may be missing something. Because when we're always on the defensive, that's kind of a negative position. 
See, we should know scripturally what we believe, but we should live a life so formed by Jesus that people look at us and say, I want the, the life that you have. It's inviting to me. There's something different about this. That is meekness. It's that God's righteousness is so on display in your life that there's no way you could have done this on your own. Someone looks at how we handle crisis and they're like, man, there is no way you could have done that on your own. Something's different about you. It's a life of invitation. It's a life that's beautiful and, and, and it's intimate with God because that's what meekness is. And it says we will inherit the earth. This is how, this is how we evangelize. Like when I go to the Rams game and I see guys preaching that oh, you're gonna go to hell, like that's true. If we don't turn from God, hell is real. But is that, like is it working? Because I'm like a Christian, I'm going to heaven and I'm like, oh dang, that kind of hurt. Like I'm like, man, I'm like looking at myself like, man, I suck. Like, and I love Jesus. I'm like, I, I know, like I believe what you're saying, but I'm kind of like, don't feel good about myself. Not that our job is to make everyone feel good about themselves, but I think that if we lived a life so inviting that it would be easier to evangelize. This is what he's saying. This is the conquering strategy of the kingdom of God is be so inviting to people by how you live your life that they're like, I want to be a part of your kingdom because it's so opposite to this kingdom. It's so opposite to the world. And I think sometimes in the church, we've maybe looked too much like another kingdom and we don't live in this life that's inviting. So people, we wonder why it's so hard to get people to come to church. It's like, okay, because we've only made it about coming to church. But have they come to our table? Have they come into our life? Have they looked at who we are and said, man, that's, there's, you, you are what you talk about. You're, there's a meekness to you. There's a security. Meekness is to be secure. I think when we're so defensive, we're insecure about what we believe and who we believe in. But when we live a life of invitation, guess what? It's actually, I am so secure in my savior and that his life is better, and that his way is better, that it's, it, I'm good. I don't need to argue. I don't want to fight. I want to invite you into my life. I want to invite you into what we're doing because I believe that God is so real that he'll make himself real to you. So it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This speaks to the essential need to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of our life. I, we cannot know God perfectly, but we can know God accurately. We may not serve God perfectly, but our goal should be to serve God accurately. Hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will be satisfied, which means this. My desire is that I obey God as perfect as I can. Like people will say, well, I'm just, I'm never gonna be perfect, so... That's not an excuse or a liberty to live how we want. Our sole desire as believers is to please God. And God says, I have standards. I have things that I have put in place not to harm you or to restrict you, but to help you. And so when our pursuit is, I want to obey God with my life, what begins to happen is when we go off or when we miss, we easily repent and we say, okay, God, align my thinking with your word, align my life with your word, because my sole desire is to please you. This is what it's saying, to hunger and thirst. It's essential to who we are. It's essential to the life of the believer. Jesus says, seek thee first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I think sometimes we think a lot about the all these things. 
And, he, and Jesus even says in that, he says, that's how the Gentiles think. That's how people think who have no revelation of God is where will my food come from and where will my clothes come from? He's saying, if you make your sole focus in life to live out and to obey what I have called, which is my righteousness, is my perfect character, that's enough for you to worry about because it's impossible, right? We look at God, he is holy, he is perfect, and my life's pursuit is to become more like him. That is what it means when he says, I hunger and thirst for this. If that's our desire, it doesn't matter how much money we have, if we got the promotion or not, if we married the spouse right now and we're 30, we're like, I'm, I'm never gonna get married. It's like, no, relax, it's okay to be single. You can be satisfied in understanding that God and who he has called you to be is enough to worry about and he will give you the strength to become who he's called you to become. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Merciful is to be generous, to be forgiving, to be compassionate. It's to look to bring healing everywhere we go. Mercy covers, it doesn't expose. The mercy of God is God not giving us what we do deserve. I deserve Death, I deserve the wrath of God. We deserve, it says we have all fallen short. That's what we deserve. But God's, in God's mercy, he says, I'm gonna put that on Jesus. God's grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. God's mercy is giving, not giving us what we do deserve. So he forgives us. God's grace is then I'm going to empower you to live a life that is merciful. I'm not only gonna give you mercy, but I'm gonna give you the ability to be merciful. And that when we sow mercy, guess what? It says, you'll reap that. Sometimes when we were like, well, people are just so hard on me. Are we hard on people? Do we, are we merciful to people? Are we gracious to people? Are we loving to people? Are we compassionate? Jesus talks about this. We actually need to be those who forgive one another. 70 times seven. Forgive, let go. See, to be, to, to, to be stingy and to be bitter, it doesn't, it's not compatible with the kingdom of God. To be someone who's not generous and not willing to give and not willing to serve and not willing to forgive and not willing to love, I know, well, you don't know what they did to me. But do you know what you did to God? That's what he's saying. It's like, we didn't deserve the mercy of God, yet we received it because of Jesus. They may not deserve your mercy, but we give it because Jesus gave it to us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This speaks to a lifestyle that is holistically pursuing God. James says this, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, or a double-souled person is unstable in all of our ways. When we feel unstable in our intimacy with God, usually it means that we have two allegiances in our life. We're trying to serve two masters. We're trying to serve two gods. We're trying to serve ourselves and God. Or we're trying to serve people pleasing and God. We're trying to serve sex and God. We're trying to serve two different gods and we can't serve two different gods. And a, those who are pure in heart, that they will see God. It's those who say, God, I am not perfect, but I am pursuing you and you alone. You are my pursuit. You are my desire. You are my goal. And I want to be someone whose life is, is, is personified by pursuit with my whole heart and mind of Jesus himself. The keys can come on up. This is where I finish. It says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. I'll pause here for a moment. We have made Christianity about Finding peace. It doesn't say blessed are the peace finders. 
or peace havers. Like if you have peace, blessed are you. It doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. It says blessed are the peacemakers. See, that's why I think we have like Christian Buddhists today because Christianity has been all about finding peace. I just need to find my peace. So I come to church, I'm like, I just need peace. I need peace. I'm just like, bad week. Just give me peace, God. That's not bad. God is the giver of peace. You know, like I was telling you, we work with young people long enough. We make decisions just off if I feel peace. They're like, I want to go climb Mount Everest. I feel peace about it. It's like, okay, have you trained? No, but I feel peace. <laughs> Do you have the money? No, I feel peace. It's like, okay, have fun. <laughs> I hope that peace finds you when you're like at the highest point and you have no oxygen. Love you, right? Like we, we, we make it about, I want to find my peace. And so I do whatever I can just to find my peace. And, and Jesus will bring you peace. But imagine if he said, blessed are those who find the peace. I think a lot of us would be good. But he didn't say that. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Every family has a peacekeeper. They're the most stressed person in the family, if you want to know who they are, <laughs> right? It's usually the oldest born, you know, the firstborn, and they're trying to like band-aid everything together and make sure everyone's happy. Like, oh no, I just want to keep the peace. Like, no, don't be mad at each other. Don't say it. Don't say it. No, no, you don't say it. And we're just trying to like keep the peace. We got to keep the peace. We're like trying to keep the peace in our marriage. Like, oh, I love you. But you're like, you're mad at him, right? Because you don't want to say it. You want to keep the peace. <laughs> we don't want to confront he didn't say be peacekeepers. He said be peacemakers, which means this. When there is conflict, you run to it. And we deal with it. When there is hurt and pain in our world, we run to the people that we disagree with and we sow peace into their life and we make it. We have a creative God and a Holy Spirit that doesn't just say you have to try to maintain it. He's saying, I actually have given you the ability to create peace. Create peace in situations where there's no peace. Create a calmness, a steadiness, a sturdiness. Imagine in this place, in, this, in our country, in our cultural moment that is divided by race and political party and socioeconomic space. Imagine if the church were peacemakers. Where we went to the person we disagreed with and we served them and we loved them and we prayed with them. We said, let's make peace. Come on, let's do this. We can do this. But it won't happen in the world if it doesn't first happen in the church. We don't make peace in the church. Someone looks at us wrong in the parking lot, I'm getting a new church. This place is demonic. They don't sing our favorite worship song. It's a place of preference. Well, they didn't sing the song I wanted. I'll give Steve one more shot, you know. You know what Jesus says about confrontation and making peace? He says, if you have a problem with someone, go to them. <laughs> Talk it out. If you then can't settle it, go to a leader in the church. If you then can't settle it again, go to the pastor of the church. Then if you can't settle it, whoever is refusing to make peace, guess what happens to them? They get kicked out. You're gone. Because Jesus valued peace in his home. It says this, wherever there's division and strife, there's every demonic work. So sometimes we do the Lord's work the devil's way. We say the right things, but we're actually sowing division, sowing hate. That's not how God's family works. We deal with conflict and we make peace with one another. Look at Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. 
he tried to keep peace in Egypt. He comes into Egypt, Pharaoh's like, man, who's that girl? That woman is beautiful. He's like, that's my sister. It's like, whoa, if I did that to my wife, it's over, man. Like, you're toast. <laughs> hey, that's my sister. Yeah, 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 take her, man. Yeah, don't worry about it. A curse of God comes upon Pharaoh because it wasn't his sister, it was his wife. Then he gets blessed and he leaves. The next chapter, it says that they were so wealthy, him and his nephew, Lot, that they had division in the home. It's like they had so much money, they had so much, they didn't know what to do with it. You know, it's like, oh, that's a good problem to have. Come on in Jesus' name, right? They didn't know what to do. And in this time, instead of keeping the peace, he made peace. Because Abraham had the right to choose where to live because he was the patriarch. He actually had the choice. But instead of making the choice, he deferred to his nephew and says, okay, you choose. I'm going to make peace. I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to make peace. You choose where you want to live and I'll take it wherever else. Why? Because he was secure that his God would provide no matter where he lived. Peacemakers are secure. I don't need to be right. God's right. (laughs) I don't need to come out on top in the argument. I'm going to make peace. Why? Because I'm secure that God is who he says he is and that he is good. And if we need to be vindicated, guess what? God will shine through whether on this side of eternity or the next. But my job is to be someone who goes and makes peace. So today, maybe you need to make peace in your marriage. Make peace with your, a, a, a son or a daughter who's far off. Make peace with a family member. Make peace in your workplace. Make peace wherever we go because that is our call. This last one, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for they will have a reward in the kingdom of heaven. If we live this life that's so counter to the world, persecution will come. When it's a life that's so different than how everyone else lives, some people will be invited into our life because they want it and some people will hate us for the life that we live. And when persecution comes, don't quit, don't give up, don't throw in the towel because there's a reward in heaven waiting for us. Because our God is a God who rewards those who diligently seek him. It says this in Romans, it says that they actually store up wrath for unbelievers in eternity, but they store up reward for believers in eternity. So it feels painful and overwhelming now, but God's saying, I'm gonna reward you, just wait, just wait. There's a reward. And sometimes we sense it and we feel it. We know it now in the present and there is reward in knowing God now, but it pales in comparison to the perfect reward that we will receive when we walk in the new heavens and the new earth with our God face to face and we can be with him and we can walk with him and there's no longer this barrier and boundary of this broken world, but there's this beautiful, perfect kingdom that he designed it to be from the beginning. That is our hope. That is our reward. So in this place, in this space, And Jesus finishes this. Then he goes on the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That was just his intro. (laughs) And then he goes, before he gives direction, he gives blessing, right? He gives the blessing of of the beatitude. And then he gives direction. And he says, you say don't murder. And I said this to like the last service. It's like, that one's easy. It's like, come on, don't murder. It's like, and if you've murdered here, we love you. We'll get you some help. But like, it's a pretty easy one, right? Like I haven't murdered anyone, I promise, right? He says, you say don't murder. I say don't hate in your heart. Then they're all like, oh man, (laughs) 
murdered some people. He says, hey, you say don't commit adultery. I say don't lust. And he goes on this list of things and everyone gets to the end and they're like, Jesus, how are we supposed to do this? And you know the first question they ask him after they finish the Sermon on the Mount? It's my favorite. Can you teach us how to pray? <laughs> because when you stand in the glory and the holiness of God and the standard that he has called us to, the first thing we should do would be like, God, I need you to teach me how to pray because I can't do that. That's what the disciples are saying. That's impossible. Teach me how to pray because I know if you teach me how to pray, then you can help me out. If you've called me to be perfect as I am perfect, you're calling me higher and I want to walk with you. They say, the first discipline, they say, teach me how to pray. That's why I love our house. That's why I love our pastor, why he's a person of prayer. Prayer does something in your life as a believer. And if you're feeling overwhelmed today and if you're feeling like you can't make it and if you're feeling after this sermon, it's like, man, I am none of those things. Guess what? Welcome to the club. But what we're going to do today is we're going to pray. And we're going to pray through what Jesus taught us on how to pray. So if you can stand to your feet. And if you could, I'm like my dad in some ways. I'm like a modern monk. I like the contemplative prayer if we can, which means this is we're not really praying for God to do anything, but we're praying introspectively for God to reveal some things. And I'm going to pray the Lord's prayer over our church. And I'm going to pray the same prayer that he taught his disciples. So if you could just close your eyes and if you lift your hands and just receive it, I'm going to pray a portion of it. And then I'm going to just speak into it prophetically a little bit. And then we're going to continue on. But if you just receive this prayer for the next three minutes, we're going to just pray over this. Because when we stand in the glory and the great majesty of Jesus Christ, the first thing we should do is not gloat about who we are, but we need to ask him for help so we can become more like who he is. So it says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, I pray right now over this service, those who are in person and online, that two things begin to happen in this moment, that one, they sense the fatherhood of God upon their life. The spirit of adoption is rising up with them. The spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, is rising up in every person and they're realizing that you are a father that is good and consistent and loving and caring. And you are a father that loves and believes and is involved in their life. And I pray for the very sonship and daughtership of God to be in this room to know that you are our father and that you are holy. Hallowed is your name. There is no name like the name of Jesus. Every name pales in comparison. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Holy is your name, O oh God. We are not holy. We are, we are really, we are weak without you. We are ineffectual without you, but with you, God, we can become who you have called us to become as sons and daughters. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray right now the very kingdom of Christ to begin to become evident in every part of our life, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, in our businesses. I pray that it will be the kingdom of God that will be evident to everybody. I pray that there's healing and restoration in the kingdom of God and it's on earth as it is in heaven. You didn't just die so we could get into heaven after we die. You died so you could get heaven into us right now. So I pray the very spirit of heaven to overflow us, to overwhelm us, to, to come out of us, to pour out of who we are, the very character and the nature of God 
God to begin to pour out into our marriages and our families and our lives and our friendships and our business. Everything is going to be kingdom in Jesus' mighty name. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, I pray right now the very provision of God, the very protection of God, that we don't rely on bread, but we rely on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I pray that the very word of God becomes life to us in this week, that as we read and study your word, that you become more and more real to us. And God, I pray right now, if there's any blockage of bitterness, we, we just ask for forgiveness. If there's any sins in our lives that we've been walking in, in patterns and habits that are not according to your scripture, God, we pray right now, we just say, we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we give it to you, oh God. We say, forgive us. Forgive me, God, for falling short of your glorious standard and realign me to who you are. And God, now let help me forgive others. Help me forgive someone who did me wrong and hurt me and said something to me. And God, I, I release forgiveness. I release grace and no more bitterness in our life. And God, I pray that you are good and faithful so you can forgive me. You can help me forgive others. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Lord, I thank you that this church is not a church that is weak or ineffective or people that are broken, but we are people that are set free by the power of Jesus. And we know that your power will protect. Your power will infuse us with the Holy Spirit that we can become someone we never asked, think, dreamed, or imagined. This is a community of people that we're going to see a life that's so inviting. We're going to see the city of Ventura reach for Jesus and the county of Ventura reach for Jesus, not because of who we are in our self-righteousness, but because of who you are in your righteousness and your power. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to heal minds and to break addictions and to, to, to heal bodies right now. God, you are a powerful God. You are a good God. You are not weak, but you are strong and you are consistent. So God, in your power and in your grace, give us what we need this week to be who you called us to be. Let's continue to worship this morning. We so appreciate you spending time with us. If you'd like to invest into what God is doing through City Church California, you can go to our website, citychurchca.com, and click Give. Thanks again, and we hope to see you at one of our campuses this Sunday.